following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. The cross upon which Jesus died Is a shelter in which we can hide And His grace so free Is sufficient for me And deep is the fountain that's wide as the sea There's room at the cross for you Yes, there's room at the cross for you Though millions have come There's still room for Yes, there's room at the cross for you. Though millions have found him a friend and have turned from their old life of sin, Till the Savior awaits to open the gates to welcome the lost before it's too late. There's room at the cross for you. Yes, there's room at the cross for you. There's still room for one Yes, there's room at the cross for you still room for one yes there's room at the cross for Terror of the Philistines. Let's pray. Almighty God, as I speak the word you've put on my heart, I trust you to bring your Holy Spirit conviction 
that you would set a new course and a new direction for each of our lives, dealing with us according to our sin and according to your righteousness. Lord, I trust you to accomplish your work in this congregation and in this city of Washington. Lord, be glorified in this place. I pray in your holy name. Amen. In Cumberland, Maryland, there is a favorite little shop. It's called the Creamery. You walk in the side door and all along the left side are these beautiful display cases with incredible delicacies. You come to the cash register where you order, and then over on this side, they have dedicated one bar just to ice cream, where they do the most wonderful things. I walked into the creamery just recently. I saw on their board that they had chicken noodle soup. So I said, could I have a sample of your chicken noodle soup? Yes, sir. And they brought me out a little cup of chicken noodle soup. And I stood there in the creamery and enjoyed that sample. Well, now I could walk just a bit further, and they have all of these wonderful ice creams. And, and I did this as well. They had pistachio, one of my favorites. And I said, could I have a sample of your pistachio ice cream? They said, certainly, sir. So they pulled out a little ice cream cone, and they did that pistachio number right on the cone. So I stood there, and I had that wonderful pistachio ice cream cone. How much do I owe them? I don't owe them anything. I just went in and sampled the wares. I was free to walk out the door. Now, I didn't do that. I instead went back and said, yes, thank you. I'll have a big bowl of that chicken noodle soup with a sandwich. And then after I was finished with that, I said, now I want the big bowl of pistachio ice cream. But some of you would come to church and you would sample the goods and you would walk out not owing anything. And some of you would come repeatedly to the house of the Lord and sample the goods and walk out the door. Owing nothing. Having no connection. Having no fellowship. Having no accountability. Blow in, blow out. Thank you very much, Pastor. We'll be back next week for our sample. I want to share with you today the life of a man who never got serious with God. I want you to see the decisions he made and the result of those decisions. You see, the truth is, this is not a dress rehearsal we're engaged in. This is life. And what I choose to do with my life in this place will determine my eternal destiny. 
Now, I can think I'm going through life sampling all of the best that I can find. Yes, thank you, I'll have a little bit of that pride. Thank you, I'll have a little bit of that arrogance. Yes, and thank you, give me a serving of humility so I can cover over my arrogance. And then thank you, I'll have a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And so we go through life collecting everything we can collect, and then we want to drive it in the BMW. And we don't want to owe anybody anything. We want to walk around like, this whole deal is my cup of cherries. And then you get the pits and you say, what's this about? Why do I deserve this? I ought to deserve something better than this. Why am I having all this hassle? Why am I having this trouble? And then the pity party starts. Oh, God, why don't you change me? You know, God, I want to just walk in and feel good about myself. Well, guess what? You've just been sampling the wares. You've been playing games with God. The call of Christ is very simple. It's not complicated. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand it. He says, if you want to follow me, die. Pay the price. If you want me to come and receive you, turn away from your sin and don't touch that unclean thing again. If you continue to touch the unclean thing, you won't have my presence with you. It's simple. But when I go around and just sample the wares with an attitude of entitlement, I never get serious. I never really become a part of a body. I want a feel-good deal. I want the pity party. I don't want to be a new creature. I want to be the same old guy with a new front. Now, I want to go to heaven this way in my sin. Now, don't ask me to change God. Don't ask me to lay down my life. You lay down your life. That's the deal. You lay down your life, and you let me go to heaven and keep my life. I want to show you the story of this man in Scripture. I want you to see the result of a man's decisions. I pray that as I share this story with you, you will begin to see the result of your decisions because today is the day of salvation. Jesus Christ has opened wide the door for you to enter in to a whole new relationship with him. The question is, are you here to be serious about God or are you here to sample the wares? We find the story in 1 Samuel, the 13th chapter. 1 Samuel, the 13th chapter. Let me give just a bit of background. Samuel is a farm boy. He's out looking for his donkeys. And in the midst of looking for his donkeys, the Lord God of heaven steps into his life and introduces him to Samuel, the powerful prophet of God. And Samuel anoints him king over Israel. Then he tells him, this is the series of things that will occur in your life. You're going to be walking down the road. You're going to see three men approaching you. One will be carrying 
some goats, another some cheese, and another three loaves of bread. One of them will give you two loaves of bread. That's your provision. Take it. You're going to be walking down the road on your way home to your daddy's farm, and as you go, you're suddenly going to meet a whole procession of prophets. They're going to be singing and dancing and prophesying. You are going to join them. That's exactly what happens. The Word of God says that Samuel turned to leave, and as Saul walked away, he became suddenly, under the power of the Spirit, a new man. Changed. So he goes home to the farm. He doesn't tell anybody what's happened. The only difference is, down in the south field, there's an encampment of soldiers. He doesn't know what to do with them. So he goes to plowing on his daddy's farm, and the soldiers are over there camped, waiting for the king to decide to be a king. I wonder who's waiting on you to step into your place with God. Should I say that again? I wonder who is waiting on you to step into your place as the head of your house. Or who is waiting on you to step into your place as the testimony of Jesus Christ? Who is waiting on you to assume the place God has given you in power and authority in the Holy Spirit? Well, Samuel, as he's plowing the field, sees that the people are all weeping, and he doesn't understand why. And so he asks them, why is everybody weeping? What's the bad news? And then he hears the Ammonites have come against a city in Israel, and they're going to gouge out the eye. The one eye of every person will be gouged out to bring shame on the name of Israel. And the Holy Spirit falls on this young farmer. He rises up and he sacrifices right there his oxen. He cuts up a piece of that raw meat. He wraps it. He gives it to a soldier. He says, take it to that city. Soon all of the parts of the oxen have been cut up. This bloody ox piece goes all over the nation. And Saul says, tell them that if they don't show up for the battle, this is what's going to happen to they and their household. And the scriptures say the terror of God fell on Israel. And 300,000 plus men show up to fight the Ammonites. And the Ammonites are utterly destroyed. Now Saul sends home all but 3,000 of those 330,000 men. Jonathan, his son, operating in the spirit, attacks an outpost of the Philistines. Now that's like taking a stick and whacking a hornet's nest. And those hornets came buzzing out after him. The word was sent out through all of the land. Israel is now a stench to the Philistines. And they are gathering for war. And we find this in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. 
Verse 5, the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. The Septuagint says 30,000 chariots. And that was the Bible that Jesus read. He read the Septuagint. 30,000. So we know that this was an innumerable number of men, probably an army, somewhere in the area of a million-plus foot soldiers. Israel at that time could only field at their very best 300 foot soldiers. Quickly you see the drama that's beginning to unfold. And they have the Abrams tank. For that's what a chariot was in that day. They had iron chariots. The Philistines controlled the technology for creating iron implements of war. The children of Israel were backward technologically. They had no swords. They had to take their hoes and their scythes to the Philistines to sharpen. There were only two swords among them. Jonathan had one and King Saul had one. So you have a an army equipped for modern warfare with swords and shields and spears and javelins and, and bows and arrows. And you have these Stone Age people with clubs and hoes and rakes and sticks coming against them. Well, obviously, the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, and they hid in caves and thickets and among the rocks and the pits and in cisterns. Some Hebrews even joined. They crossed the Jordan. Some of them even became a part of the Philistine army. They said, look, we're going to join the winning side here. We don't want to lose our families. We don't want to lose our homes. We're joining the Philistines. Now, what I want you to see is that when the Holy Spirit fell on Israel, the terror of God fell on them, and they mustered 300,000 men, and they defeated the Ammonites. But in this case, Saul has put out the command, let all of Israel hear, but there is no Holy Spirit presence in it, and nobody's going to show up to fight. Saul has already learned the lesson. I can take the army and go defeat the enemy. Now he is going to try to take his army and defeat the enemy. The difference is there's no Holy Spirit presence. Why isn't there? Well, it's very easy. Samuel, as he was anointing Saul, said, go down to Gilgal and wait for me there seven days. So the Holy Spirit is not going to come until the seven days are up. See, now you have to answer the question, what is the source of your strength? Is your source of strength in the number of men showing up with weapons, 
Is your strength in your bank account? Is your strength in your strategy for investment? Is your strength in how well you can do your job? How well you can please the Philistines? Has the terror of the Philistines fallen on you instead of the terror of God? So now you're saying, look, I I don't have any strength. I better go hide. Or I better join the Philistines. Well, the church today has said, let's join the Philistines. Let's operate like Madison Avenue. Let's make church a show. Let's do the little dance. Let's do the little drama. Let's let's do what we have to do to entertain the troops. This is the flesh deal that has gone on from day one. I look at this little fellowship and I say, is this the army that God is going to send to deal with Washington, D.C.? Is this the arm? Maybe we better get some marketing going. You know, maybe we better do some slick brochures. Maybe we better get the vision out there. You know, you know maybe we better bring in some well-known national speakers and raise some money. You know, maybe we need to get our prospectus together. Maybe we better take it around to the top leaders of the Christian church and say, this is a fabulous opportunity to have your name with something that's going to be successful and big in Washington. Is that where our strength is? Or is our strength in Almighty God and in the power of the Holy Ghost? Watch what happens. Saul is at Gilgal waiting on Samuel. The troops with him are quaking with fear. Look at 1 Samuel 13, verse 8. He now waits seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men begin to scatter. So in other words, Saul says, I'm going to wait seven days. If God doesn't show up in seven days, then I know what I have to do. Man has to do what a man has to do. I have to be responsible. I know none of you say that, do you? Do you go out and do what you have to do because God doesn't show up for you? God will never show up on time for you. And the reason God doesn't show up on time is he wants you to show up. He wants to know what's in your heart. Are you there to sample the wares and take the ride? Or are you there to lay down your life and accept what Jesus Christ wants to do? I might ask you, on a scale of 1 to 10, what's your pride level today? Scale of 1 to 10, what is the loathing of yourself today? Do you love your sin? Do you love your position as king? 
Every man's house is his castle. How do you stand? Saul waits the seven days. Samuel doesn't show up. So verse 9, he says, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offerings. Now, please understand what he was doing. We need to understand this. The king role was separated in Israel from the priest role. The king role was to exercise leadership in the political realm. The king role was to exercise authority and to do the bidding of God in the exercise of government. The priest was to represent Almighty God, and he was the one to whom the king was to come to ask God's will. Now, Saul says, God is not showing up. Samuel has not come. So now I'm going to assume the role of king and priest. I'm going to be the whole deal. Now, that happened on another occasion. You remember in the Garden of Eden, you have Adam and Eve looking at this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they're saying, look, we think we should have the right to determine what is right and wrong for ourselves. We determined that we want to have freedom and autonomy now, yes, we're going to love God, we're going to serve God, but we're going to love God and serve Him in our way. And so Saul was simply saying, look, I'll make the decisions about how I'm going to function. I'll make the decision and I'll approach God in my own way. And when he approached God in his own way, God did not answer him. And some of you have said to me, I pray, and God doesn't answer me, and so I get up and leave my prayer closet because I'm not doing anything useful. Now you understand, the most important thing for you to do in this world is to do something important. I mean, you've got to be productive. It's a competitive culture we're a part of. You know, you've got to make the house payment. You've got to make the car payment. You've got to take care of business. I mean, you've got to do important things. Because you're important. You're somebody. So when you come into the presence of Almighty God, and he doesn't happen to be there waiting and bowing before you saying, yes, sir, how may I help you, sir? You say, hey, I showed up for God. He didn't show up. He, he wasn't there, so I'm leaving. That'll teach God. Next time, if he wants me around, he best be there on my schedule. You know, I, 
go to the restaurant to meet somebody to have lunch and they don't show up in 20 minutes, what am I going to do? I'm going to go eat without them. I mean, my schedule's important. I've got a life to live, you know. No. Jesus Christ has a life to live. And he wants to live it through me. And Saul said, you're not going to live your life through me. This is my kingdom and it's my kingship. And these are my people. And if you don't show up on time for me, I've got a battle to fight. The troops are all being discouraged by your lack of presence. If I can't count on you to show up when you're supposed to show up, I'll just go take care of business. I actually sat in a pastor's home. And he said to me, he was in serious financial trouble. He said to me, if God doesn't show up by Friday, I'm closing down my ministry and I'm moving out of this area because God isn't here. Well, I said to him, brother, I can tell you right now, God won't show up by Friday, so you might as well go ahead and move out now. He said, no, I'm going to wait till Friday, and if God doesn't show up with the money, I'm out of here. And I said, get packing. And God didn't show up. And he left. He ended up with his family and children in Colorado Springs. And I got a panic call from him. Ray, can you help us? We've been two nights in the car. We're out of money and the car's broken down. I said, I thought you were going to open a church in Colorado Springs. Didn't God meet you? No. God's not here either. I said, then you better get a job. Made a call to focus on the family. They said, we'll put you up in a motel. We'll give you $250 in cash. And they gave him a job. And he left the gospel ministry and does clerical work. Nothing wrong with clerical work. It's just that he wasn't willing to wait on God. And so God has never showed up for him. And if you were to talk with him today, you know what he would say to you? Don't trust God to show up. Get a job and cover your family. Take care of business. I mean, he took the lamp out and he rubbed on it and the genie didn't show up. Any of you been rubbing on a lamp lately? Mad because God hasn't shown up for you? Any of you in your heart saying, if God doesn't show up for me, I'm going to go do what I have to do? Go ahead and do what you have to do because he's not going to show up. You can't push God that way. So now we have Samuel showing up, 
just as the offerings are finished. And Samuel says to him, what have you done? Some of you need to hear the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart today, saying, what have you done? What have you done? You have walked into that sin. You have consumed it. You have clutched it to your heart. God hasn't shown up to deliver you. And you're blaming him and saying it's God's fault. It's God's fault I have this temper. It's God's fault I have this bitterness. It's God's fault that I act this way. It's God's fault that I have this addiction. Because God won't show up and deliver me. Some of you need to say, Oh, what have I done? What have I done? There's an awakening that needs to happen in our souls as we see how we've tried to play God in our lives and we've tried to be the man or the woman, choosing from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, saying, I'll be the one who determines what is right or wrong. Let me make the decisions. Instead of waiting before God and saying, oh God, I'll wait on you eight days or nine days or ten days. I'll wait a week, a month, a year. I'm not going to go anywhere, God. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to wait on you. Saul replies, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, notice, it's your fault, Samuel. You didn't come on time. It's your fault, God. If you would have just taken from my heart that lust, I would not have committed the sin. So God, it's your fault. If I had a better God, I'd be a better man. Now all the time this is happening, the Philistines are assembling at Michmash. And Saul says, I thought... I mean, that sums up the whole deal. I thought. I thought I could get away with it. I thought I could make it. I thought you wouldn't care. I thought I could sin and I was covered by the blood of Jesus. Some of you are going to come up to the judgment day and the Lord God of heaven is going to pronounce judgment, and you're going to say, but I thought. I thought you loved me unconditionally, God. I thought I didn't have to worry about my money, that, that I could do what I needed to do as a responsible person, determining what is right and wrong. Some of you at the judgment day you're going to see your children go into hell and you're going to say, but God, I thought I had to keep them happy. I thought they needed to be dressed like the world so they wouldn't be oddballs. I thought I was just helping my children be happy and acceptable in the culture. 
Lord, I thought you'd understand. I love my kids. I thought, Lord, you'd understand that I was tired and couldn't spend the time reading the scriptures. I thought you'd understand that I really had to watch that television. Lord, I thought you'd understand. How can you treat me this way, Lord God? I thought you understood that I was a victim, that I couldn't help myself. I mean, everybody else has been understanding of me, God. Everybody else has made allowances for me. Everybody else has let me get off easy. But, oh God, what's this? I don't want to go to hell. The scriptures say, at the end time judgment, there is going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because suddenly the reality of the condition of the heart is revealed. And all the excuses and all the whining and all of the victim stuff is shown up for what it is. Prideful arrogance. I don't want you to face that and not understand that you were warned. Be on notice. You can't play games with God. He reads the intent of the heart. He he understands the deepest motivations of our soul. I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. God doesn't show up, so I feel compelled to do the religious exercise that I think is necessary. I felt compelled because I saw the finances growing short. I thought I had to go get that second job. I felt compelled. Lord God, I had to go out and get that loan to cover the business deal. I had to go out and and do it myself because you didn't show up. It's your fault. I can't wait to find out what job you want me to work in, God. I'm going to have to go and light my own torches because you just don't show up for me. You show up for Pastor Ray and you show up for other people, but you don't show up for me. So I'm compelled to just go do what I have to do. Verse 13. You acted foolishly. Literally, you acted without any moral regard for reality. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Sometimes I talk with people and they say to me, Pastor, 
I'm a failure. Pastor, I'm just, I'm no good. And they're shocked with me when I say, yes, that's right. They expect me to say, you know, you're not as bad as you think you are. We, we, you know, we all go through struggles. Now, let me tell you something. You're worse than you ever thought you were. You haven't even begun yet to uncover the depth of wickedness that has been planted in your heart. There is absolutely no possibility of hope for you in the flesh. You can't paint up this deal and come out smelling like a rose. You can't go to some place and have them speak some words over you or have them doctor you up and repair you so that you can go out and be that wonderful person. You know, I can't say to Jan, sweetheart, you know I've done my best. You know I've tried. You know, cut me some slack here. I can't do that. Do you know why I can't? Because I've never done my best. I've never done my best. The scriptures say, have you resisted sin yet to the point of shedding your blood? Now the scripture is very clear about our condition. It says there's nothing good that is in us. It's Gnosticism that teaches that there is a spark of good in each of us and that all we have to do is develop that spark and release it and become all that we can become. That's Gnosticism. That's not Christianity. Christianity teaches that there is nothing good that resides in me. That's why the command is, if you would follow after Jesus, take up your cross and die and be resurrected a new person. So you can try to take this old shell of a wicked, ugly person and you can try to prop up this dead corpse. Or you can just go ahead and let that die and be resurrected a new person. Saul wasn't willing to do that. Samuel leaves. Now, understand this. You have the Philistines with all of their chariots and their million-plus army. You have the children of Israel, a little goat herd. They were supposed to wait on God, and God was going to come and move on their behalf. But Samuel walks away and does not give Saul any instructions. He is left now totally on his own. Now what's he going to do? Well, he does what the human flesh is the very best at. He whines. 
He makes excuses. He tries to hide. He pretends. He postures. He puffs himself up. And he sits under a tree and doesn't do a thing. But Jonathan, love Jonathan. Jonathan has his armor bearer with him. The Philistines have split up their forces because it's obvious now that Israel doesn't have the courage or ability to come and face them. So they've split up their troops, and they're beginning to fan out over the land, pillaging and destroying, killing. Jonathan says, see up at the top of that mountain, those Philistines, let's show ourselves to them. Let's test what God wants to do here, because God can save by many or by few. So they show themselves, and the Philistines say, come on up here, we'll show you. That was the sign. They climb up together, and immediately the power of God falls. They slay 20 men. Thunder, lightning. The earth shakes. The Philistines are terrified. And suddenly they begin to run. And as they begin to run, the children of Israel come out of their holes and their dens. And they kill the Philistines. Now as this great victory is being won, Saul says, Nobody is allowed to eat any food until I have gained Victory over my enemies. So he tries in the human flesh now to step into the victory that God is giving. And he makes a covenant, an oath. And so none of the men are allowed to eat any provision. But Jonathan doesn't know about this and he passes some bees and some honey and he dips his sword into that and he has himself some honey and his eyes brighten and the energy's back and he's back in the battle. Well, they come together that night and they say, let's, uh, let's go fight them more. Let's go destroy them. We haven't finished this job. So they inquire of God and God doesn't answer. And Saul says, let's find out who sinned. So they cast lots, and the lot falls to Jonathan. And he says, what have you done? I just ate some honey. You're going to die. Because you have sinned. Now I want you to see something. The person who is walking in the flesh is always eager to maintain all religious symbols. They're eager to maintain an appearance of being religious. They want to enforce the law on everybody else. They want to demand on everybody else, you have to come up to my standard. 
You have to do it my way. And if you don't, my condemnation is going to flow out on you. And now Sam, or Saul is establishing what will go on for the rest of his kingship, that he is going to enforce the letter of the law because he has lost the presence of God. Bitterness rises up in his heart. Anger rises up in his heart. And the way he satisfies his bitterness and his anger is being super critical of everybody else. If you look in the scripture, the accuser is always Satan. And there is no one in the world quite as adept at being an accuser as the one for whom God has not shown up. Well, the children of Israel, the soldiers step forward and they say, no, Jonathan is going to go free. God has used him to win the battle this day. And they protected him. Now let's draw all this together. I want you to go to Galatians, the sixth chapter. I'll begin reading with verse seven. Do not be deceived. This is Galatians, the sixth chapter. I'll begin with verse seven. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Saul sowed into his life rebellion, arrogance, hard-heartedness. He sowed into his life the determination that if he was going to be king, then he would have the whole ball of wax. He would have the authority over when God was going to show up. He would have the authority over the battle the children of Israel would fight. He would be in charge. He would do what he wanted to do. And when it didn't go well, he would whine. And he would blame God for it. He would blame Samuel for it. And he would logically think his way through any situation, slipping and sliding, covering his tracks, making sure that he knew how to just be contrite enough to convince that person to trust them again. But fundamentally, he was sold out to be who he was, and he didn't want to change. God changed him, but quickly, Saul fled from what God did in his soul, and he said, no, I can make this deal work. I want to tell you today, you're going to have to decide. Are you going to sample the wares? Are you going to 
take just enough to look good and then walk away and say, okay, I can finesse my way through this deal. Or are you going to give up your life and allow Jesus Christ to live in you? I hope today that some of you are tired of the bitterness. I hope you're tired of the sin. I hope you're tired of the failure. I hope you're tired of the pain. Are you tired enough of it to let it go? I mean, how much, how much does God have to bring on you before you will finally say, I give it all to you, Jesus. Have your way in my life. Exercise your authority over me. I will wait upon you, and I will trust you. Thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195, or visit us online at nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. We love you. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, with great joy. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, with Christ our